so like I feel like we don't even need to start out with the whole like uh the, the whole who are we canceling today we're obviously canceling the supreme court there's nothing obviously. else <laughs> I'm so mad the end times are nigh my friends uh. <laughs> um Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Bird. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm just giving it a pregnant pause. No pun intended. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> I feel like we should leave that in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so if- <laughs> Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Oliver Ash Klein. You're listening to cancel me daddy the show where we take a closer look at all of the panic ground cancel culture with thoughtful analysis and verbal shit posting emphasis on the verbal shit posting <laughs> um ugh, caitlin Caitlin, Caitlin, Caitlin. Yes. How are you doing today? Oh, you know, just another day of losing constitutional rights. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I was not surprised at all by by what's going on because we've been on this path for a while, but it doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't mean it feels any better in my body. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of fascinated with the fact that the opinion was leaked in the first place because leaks do not happen in SCOTUS. Um, But can I share my little pet theory for who I think leaked it? Oh, please do. I think Alito leaked it or one of his clerks. Why? Tell me more. uh, We've had subsequent reporting that sort of suggests that this is the case, but it it appeared that Chief Justice Roberts was trying to moderate the opinion and make it so that they let Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban go into place, but they wouldn't do a full-throated overruling of Roe v. Wade, which has been the pattern that SCOTUS has used for the last, you know, however many years to sort of chip away at abortion rights in general. Um, and I think Alito leaked the opinion and said he had five votes for the hardliners to lock in those votes, right? Because mm. it's being reported that that the five conservative justices besides uh, besides Roberts were all in favor of this. If any of them were wavering, um, they don't have the option really to change their vote in private now. So everybody's going to know that they changed their mind um, to go with something more moderate down the line. Um, I don't really think there's any advantage to liberals leaking the opinion. I mean, public outrage uh, actually doesn't serve like the left very well right now. Like, the election, the midterm election is not for another seven months, right? And so we were going to get a decision on this case most likely before then. So actually having outrage at the last possible moment in the election cycle is more advantageous to 
sort of the left side of this argument. And now you have all these people set, you know, focused on the efficacy of the leak itself rather than the horrific thing that the court is doing. So there's multiple like advantages that conservatives are gaining out of this. Whereas I don't think there there's anything that, that liberals are getting besides outrage on this and the outrage would have been better served at another time. Yeah. And probably bigger, right. If it was a final decision, as opposed to one that every, a lot of people are like, well, we don't know, this isn't the final decision. So, you know, some people are saying like, wait and see what the final yeah. decision looks like. And now everybody's primed for that final decision. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's all very frustrating. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if we come to find out later that it was, you know, one of the hardliners uh, on the conservative side that leaked this. So speaking of the court. Speaking of the court. We have a great guest this week. Uh, my, my former colleague, Ian Milheiser from Fox.com, senior correspondent. He's been covering the Supreme Court for years. We've DM'd a ton about legal happenings in the in, going on in the country, especially when we work together. You know, he would always give me a heads up when there was a trans related case, because that was part of my beat there. Um, so yeah, I'm very excited to get sort of his thoughts on it. I think he's probably the most centrist guest we've ever had on this show. So that'll be a little bit of a different change of pace. Also, he's still quite far to the left. <laughs> Not so centrist that he doesn't he doesn't believe that the uh, Supreme Court is a broken institution. <laughs> yes, no, he actually got called out by uh, Rafael Ted Cruz the other day for being happy over the leak. <laughs> and we talked to him about that as well. Well, let's let's get to it. Joining us today is Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox and a former co-worker of mine there. Um, and he is here to talk about all things Supreme Court, because that is basically the entire discourse this week. Ian, how are you doing? I mean, you know, besides the fact that I have to deal with the Supreme Court, I'm doing great. <laughs> Big mood. Yeah, seriously. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show this week is actually you got name dropped by one Ted Cruz, Rafael uh, yes. Ted Cruz of Texas. Um, and he actually mentioned you, I think, in a committee hearing. Is that correct? I, I think that's right. I think it was the yeah. Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. So do you want to like very quickly sort of walk through what, what his problem was with you? So, yeah, I mean, you, you may have heard that um, last week there was an opinion that leaked from the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. It deals with an obscure issue called whether or not abortion will be legal or not in the United States. Mm -hmm. Basically, there have been two discourses about this opinion. There's been the is it a good idea to abolish the abortion right discussion, which I think is the conversation that Democrats and liberals mostly want to have, the substantive mm -hmm. conversation. Um, and politically, that makes sense because, you know, we've seen many, many polls which show that people do not want Roe v. Wade to be overruled, sometimes by a two to one margin. Um, so I understand why Democrats want to have that conversation. 
Um, the other conversation we've been having, and this I, this seems to be the conversation that Republicans want to have, is the leak is very, very bad. And we should have this big process story. And we should talk about why it is very, very bad that the Supreme Court has gotten leaky. Um, now, I'll say a few things about that. First of all, the only leaks where we know the source have come from conservative sources. You know, we, we don't know who leaked the opinion. We do know that the Washington Post reported over the weekend that three different conservative sources told them that um, Republicans still have five votes on the Supreme Court to overrule Roe v. Wade. So, you know, take this process argument for what you want. I sent out a tweet um, sort of jokingly saying, you know, th- th- whoever leaked this, this, this is a hero. It's great. And, you know, I use the phrase, let's burn this place down, not because I think that we should literally burn the Supreme Court down, but because I've studied the Supreme Court for a really long time. And I know that its norms of confidentiality are very important to it. And the leak of an opinion would be viewed as something extraordinarily disruptive by by the justices. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the overarching point, this is what I said in a a piece I wrote for Vox, is that disrupting the inner workings of the Supreme Court is a good thing. You know, things that diminish the prestige of this court is a good thing. Mm -hmm. We have a court that isn't just dismantling abortion rights, it's dismantling voting rights right now. So, you know, I actually think that a, that proponents of abortion rights can win in a fair fight if we want to just throw this open to the electoral process. But we're not going to have a fair fight and we're not mm-hmm. going to have a fair fight because the court's been dismantling the Voting Rights Act, because it's been blessing partisan gerrymandering, because it's, it's been doing everything it can to make sure that we do not have a fair fight. Mm-hmm. And as I argue in this piece, this is consistent with the history of a Supreme Court that, you know, mm-hmm. the court that gave us Dred Scott, the court that gave us Plessy v. Ferguson, the court that spent the entire beginning of the 20th century striking down progressive labor legislation. So this is a bad institution. It served us very poorly in our history. And I mean, we could talk about what to do about it. That's a very difficult question. But I think the very first thing that we need to do is just acknowledge that this institution has not served the country well. So you said it's a difficult question, but I think a lot of people are feeling a little bit hopeless, not sure what to do. And so what would you say, like, how do how do we start to go about fixing this or changing this? So the first thing I will say, I mean, this is going to seem trite and banal, but you got to vote. Like, you, know, you, 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 you've got, I mean, and despite like, you know, what I just said about how the Supreme Court has been making it much harder to vote, that just means you have to work harder to vote. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, you, you can, you can still win a game where you're on an unlevel playing field and you are running uphill. That is still mm-hmm. possible. And the stakes mm-hmm. here are enormously high. And, and mm-hmm. the other thing that I would say, and I mean, this you know, maybe this puts me in the camp of the centrist that everyone wants to hate right now. But like, we can't like, recreating our entire politics in the United States, so that there is the ideal political party that you can vote for, and they will do everything right. Like, that is not realistic. There is a party that supports abortion rights in this country. It is called the Democratic Party. They have not done everything perfectly, in my my opinion. 
But if you want to protect abortion rights, you should do the normie banal thing and vote for the party that supports abortion rights. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think the the most basic thing that that, that everyone who, you know, who, who wants to protect abortion rights needs to do. And then you layer on top of that. I, I, I mean, I think that a large effective protest movement could be very valuable. You, you know, I think that we want to see the kind of mobilization you saw at the at the beginning of the Trump administration, where mm-hmm. people said, you know, this is not tolerable. I mean, you know, getting in the streets is nice, but the important work of politics is the stuff that isn't visible. You know, the, the important work of politics is getting on your local party committees that you can have a solid get out the vote operations that you can then get out the vote on election day. Doing that hard work of, of, of political organizing is what's going to need to happen because that's what the other side is doing. Mm-hmm. What do you say to the people who are frustrated that, you know, all of this is happening while Democrats hold both chambers of Congress and the White House. And they're thinking, you know, we've done this work. We got a result that was quite favorable to us. Why can't our elected leaders do something? Yeah. So I I guess the simple answer to that is the system is rigged. Like, I I, I think that structural arguments explain our, you know, there's a structural explanations for our problems make more sense than, I guess, political explanations. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, so in the current Senate, the Democratic, the 50 senators who who are Democrats represent 43 million more people than the 50 senators who are Republicans. So people got out, they did the work, and what it got them was a Senate that is rigged, that is barely Democratic, where, you know, even though the people actually voted for a, for a Senate that would have 56 or 57 Democrats if everyone's vote counted equally. So there's a huge thumb on the scale against left of center parties against the democratic party against liberalism generally that's a problem mm-hmm. and it means that essentially biden has to form a coalition where you know like if this were a european style parliamentary country he wouldn't have one party that controls congress there would probably be an aoc party there would be joe biden center left coalition mm-hmm. there would be a center-right party that consists of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who, because it's only a 50-50 majority in the Senate, would be an essential part of the coalition. And, you know, and there might be other parts, like, you know, there, there, there might be parties that identify with particular ethnicity. But in, in any event, there would be a coalition. And what is nice about that kind of coalition politics is it's clear who's to blame for outcomes. Like if if we had the exact same setup, it's just that Joe Biden was the head of a coalition and that coalition included Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who were the representatives of, say, the Christian Democrats or you, you know, or the Tories or, you know, whatever we would call the center-right party that that they belong to. Um, then it would be very clear what is going on here and who is to blame. You know, the United States, and I mean, I could, if you want me to explain Duverger's law and all the reason why the United States has, (laughs) yeah, but like there are, there are structural reasons why the United States has to have a two-party system. But I think Mm -hmm. one problem with the two-party system 
is that it obscures who is actually to blame. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to take abortion rights, there are 48 Democrats in the Senate who, who support the Women's Health Protection Act, mm-hmm. um, which is the bill to restore abortion rights after Roe v. Wade is struck down. And, you know, 48 is fewer than 50, but it's still 96% of the caucus. Mm-hmm. You, you know, so the, the problem isn't the Democratic Party. The problem is a few members of the coalition. And then you layer on top of that the fact that because of Senate malapportionment, because of the Electoral College, because of all these imbalances in our system, mm-hmm. Democrats have to win essentially supermajority support in right. order to be able to barely govern. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my point is simply that, I mean, you know, like I said before, if you're running uphill, you still got to win the game. But... I would place the blame here on the Constitution, which created the malapportioned Senate. I would place the blame on these structural factors and not on Joe, Joe Biden just not fighting hard enough. And, you know, if, if, if he just tried harder, we, 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 we then somehow Joe Manchin would magically change his mind about things. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a perfectly valid form of frustration to you know, sit there and go do something, you're in control. Like you said, there are, you know, structural, you know, barriers to action that they just don't have the votes to overcome right now. Um, I wanted to sort of shift gears and talk about the leaked opinion um, and get a little bit of analysis of it from you, from your perspective as somebody who, you know, covers the court with a lot of depth. I remember you and I both covered... um, the Bostock stuff when it went down. And that was actually one of the highlights of my own career was rare moment when the Supreme court does something good. Yeah. Well, I was wondering at the time if I was like the first openly trans woman to actually cover a Supreme court case live. I have no idea if that's the case. Um, But anyway, I wanted to get your analysis of, of the leaked Alito decision and sort of what your thoughts are on that. Sure. So like the, the main thing I will say about it is like this is a maximalist opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it rose it it wipes Roe completely off the books. It gives states complete authority to set whatever abortion policies they want. And when, when I say complete authority, I mean that, you know, they don't have to have exceptions if like someone will literally die if they mm-hmm. if they don't get an abortion they don't states don't have to have health exemptions you know if someone will become will, will be sterilized or face some sort of permanent disability if they don't have an abortion and they don't have states don't have to have rape and incest exemptions so mm-hmm. you, you you know i mean under alito's opinion um someone could be raped by their father and get mm-hmm. pregnant because of it and a state could forbid them from terminating that pregnancy. So this this is this is a a maximalist approach to abortion. Mm-hmm. I, I think the other question that people are wondering is after Roe falls, what comes next? Mm-hmm. Um, and the draft opinion, like the argument that Alito uses, um, is the exact same argument he used in his Obergefell dissent. That's the marriage equality case. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
the, the Constitution says that there are certain rights that are protected by the Constitution, but that aren't actually stated in the Constitution. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I find the Constitution a frustrating document, because like people have been trying to guess what these rights are for a really long time. And what Alito says is that only rights that are firmly grounded in history and tradition are among those rights, that unenumerated rights that are protected by the Constitution. And in the Dobbs draft opinion, the abortion case, he says abortion is not one of those rights. In his Obergefell dissent, he says that um, the right to same-sex marriage is not one of those rights. And, uh-huh. you know, so like, I think it's very clear that Alito wants to go after LGBTQ rights next. I don't uh-huh. know if he has five votes for that, and I am interested to see what the final a version of the of the Dobbs opinion is whether it waters down some of the language that could go after LGBT rights. Um, the other thing that I think people are worried about is contraception. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the the Hobby Lobby case, you may remember that from several years ago, that was the case that was the case where you had a Christian employer, a conservative Christian employer that didn't want to cover certain forms of birth control in their health plan. And what I think was revealing about that case is that the reason why this employer didn't want to cover these forms of birth control is because they thought that it was a form of abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, you know, and the, like there are lots of people who oppose abortions who also believe that IUDs, perhaps even birth control pills, constitute a form of abortion because they believe, and I mean, I'm not a doctor. My understanding is that the medical science on this is actually somewhat uncertain. So I don't want to go up, you know, I don't want to be like Justice Alito. And as a guy who doesn't know what he's talking about, just opine on on how uteruses work. But, you know, essentially what I'm arguing here is, is, is that we could see states banning common forms of birth control and saying we're not doing this because we're banning contraception we're doing it because we think it's a form of abortion Mm -hmm. and then it will be up to the supreme court to decide whether this falls in the contraception bucket which you know at least the dobbs opinion doesn't say that state you know doesn't touch the the precedent saying that states can't ban contraception or whether it falls in the abortion bucket in which case states can ban it what a pedantic nightmare um, really, really not here for that. Yeah. So kind of related to some of the stuff that you've been talking about in terms of like, you know, the court, whether whether Alito has like power in the votes to to roll back some of the other decisions around like LGBTQ rights, potentially contraception. Um, I've been doing investigative reporting around the Christian nationalist movement for the last two years and um, specifically around the way that they've been spreading anti-trans hate. And one thing that has really struck me is how powerful they are and how much money they have and how long that they have been planning kind of the takeover that we're seeing right now. Um, And like, I think that, you know, a lot of us um, like in civics class, right, learned um, Martin Luther King basically said like that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I'm, I'm questioning that more and more as we're kind of seeing you know, what's happening with the courts, what's happening um, with kind of the, the the business interest and the Republican interest banding together and how that Christian nationalist movement it is so strong. And I guess I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering where, where you sit in all of that or how you think about all of that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that the the hypothesis that the universe naturally bends towards justice has had a rough decade recently. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, now, to a certain extent, like, I think that needs, like, if that's what you believe, that is, that should be a galvanizing moment. You, you know, if you believe that justice will will find its way, will find its way to happen on its own, then you can be complacent. But, like, if you believe that fascism is on the table, you know, then, like, that should drive you to do more political organizing. That should mm-hmm. drive you to, like, make sure that people are, you know, are, you know, people who, you know, believe in liberal democracy generally are more inclined to vote. You know, you, 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 sh- you should be more active in politics <laughs> because, like, the consequences of you not being involved in politics could be, you know, very, very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you, you know, I, I would take the fact that we now know that things can get much worse than, like, certainly I thought they were going to get 10 years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that should be a call to action, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and not and not a call to despair. Mm. Um, now that said, I mean, I do think that there's a broader context going on here, which is that like the premise of liberalism and by like liberalism, I don't mean like left of center politics. I mean, Mm -hmm. like the idea that like we live in a plural society and there have to be rules so that people who have different values and, you know, different backgrounds and different beliefs can all get along. And liberalism is supposed to be that framework, political equality institutions that 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 that, ob- that obey the rule of law free speech you know the, the you know the idea that you you know culture is something that happens independently of government and cult and the government should allow our culture to develop on its own like all of those are in, are, are, are essential principles of liberalism mm-hmm. and as it turns out that when you let culture develop independently of government then the culture has moved in a very progressive direction. You know, it is in fact the case that there is far more acceptance of gay people, of trans people, of, you know, the equality of people of color, of the notion that opportunity should be freely available to women. Like, there's been tremendous progress on those issues over Mm -hmm. the course of the last 50 years. Like, there's just much, much more support. And if you are Ron DeSantis... You know, what you see is not only that you are losing on those issues, but you see that artists, massive artists, you know, people who create our major pop culture, Disney, mm-hmm. are beginning to acknowledge, you know, are beginning to create art you know, and have been creating art that reflects our progressive culture, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that reflects the values that are held by the majority of society, by the majority of consumers, you know, and they're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing this because Disney wants gay families to take their children to Disney World too. <laughs> they're doing this because they want people of all racial backgrounds, all sexual orientations, all gender identities mm-hmm. to, to buy Disney products. They're doing it because of capitalism. Yeah. But, you know, if you're Ron DeSantis... You maybe don't like capitalism so much right now because it's mm-hmm. producing a pop culture which doesn't reflect Ron DeSantis's values. And so what mm-hmm. Ron DeSantis wants to do is he wants to say, no, no, now the government should be involved in shaping our culture. 
you know, that is, I think, what, what, you know, a lot of the Christian nationalist groups, a lot of the social conservatives are, you know, that, that you described at the beginning of the question are doing, they're, they're saying, look, like, we can't win a battle for culture, a cultural battle in a fair fight. And we already have these other institutions of power, government, where for the reasons I described earlier, the system is rigged in favor of conservatives. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that they want to take the, you know, the centers of power where they have an unfair advantage Mm -hmm. and use those to try to browbeat the centers of power where they are at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Um, You you know, that that, I don't think that that should surprise anyone. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, but the problem is it's not just a challenge to like, you know, whether Disney's going to come out against the don't say gay bill. It's mm-hmm. not just a question of like whether Disney is going to release a movie where there is a same sex couple. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it, it, it's a question of whether or not the premise that has governed our country for a very long time. Then I think that is, has served it very well mm-hmm. that the government should be neutral on, you know, questions of what should our culture look like? What sort of art should artists produce? Um, you know, that that's the First Amendment. Um, yeah. Do you, you think, know, uh, yeah. do, do you think Ron DeSantis is doing a cancel culture on Disney? I, I mean, I, I suppose so. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, like the, the, the thing about this phrase cancel culture is like, uh-huh. it's, it's, it's just so meaningless. And I, I mean, I mean, and I think that, you know, I think that there's other things going on here besides just Ron DeSantis hates Disney. You know, one thing that I think I have realized in the last five years is how much etiquette matters. And, and, and mm-hmm. like, and here, here's what I mean by that is like business settings, like there's an etiquette, there's a professional etiquette that you have to have when you go and when you go into a business setting. Like we all learn mm-hmm. this, you know, like at some point in our lives, someone had to explain to us, here's how you here, here's how you send a professional email. You know, here's what you dress. Here's how you dress when you go to work. And like, and these norms have changed. And one way that these norms are changing is that big national companies, especially media companies, you know, Vox Media, my employer is no different in this regard. Disney is no different in this regard. They want to hire a lot of young creative people with unique skills who are college educated. And that's a very left leaning cohort. Mm hmm. And so I think historically the way that business etiquette has worked is it has come from the top down. If if you've seen Mad Men, like the Mm -hmm. whole culture of that office was defined by like the ancient partner who was 80 years old and read Ayn Rand and and said racist things because like that's how offices have historically worked. And I Mm -hmm. think we are seeing a shift in who wields culture power, cultural power within business settings? Because if you want to hire young liberal-minded people, you have to have an office culture that young liberal-minded people want to work in, and these are people who want diversity amongst many, you know, many axes. These are people who aren't just tolerant, but like have you know grown up in racially integrated settings have grown up around you know even if they are not personally gay or personally bisexual have go- grown up around gay and bisexual people have grown up around mm-hmm. trans people you 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 know, you know the, the notion that they have a friend who asked them to use they them pronouns is just very normal and probably happened to them in high school and mm-hmm. and, 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 and so 
you know, I understand, and I mean, I'm for, I'm a 44 year old white guy, so like, mm-hmm. you know, I have been in the position of having to like pull a friend aside and be like, hey, like, can you explain to me right the, what the right terminology is here? Like, can you explain mm-hmm. to me how I can, you know, interact in this setting in a way where I'm sure I'm not going to offend people? And like, I understand why people don't want to do that. Like, you, you know, it, it, it's not a fun process, mm-hmm. but like my like right to not have to have these awkward conversations occasionally should not overcome the rights of people who are not 44 year old white guys mm-hmm. to feel like they have a place at their office and you know, you, you know to feel like they are as welcome as anyone yeah. else. So my point is, is just that, I think the reason why we're having a lot of this, you know, so-called cancel culture discourse right now Mm -hmm. stems from the fact that groups that historically haven't been able to exercise cultural power Mm -hmm. now have a great deal of cultural power. I think that's normal. I think that's good. But I think it is also a new experience for some of, you know, the older white people in our office settings and, you know, and the older white people, so maybe some of the older white people in our university settings as well. And, you know, they are, maybe people who aren't as thoughtful about it are recoiling a bit from the fact that they're being asked to do things they haven't historically been asked to do. Yeah, that reminds me of like, um, so I uh, worked at a bank when I first transitioned um, and, you know, I worked for this guy, the same boss, for a couple of years before that. And I remember one time, um, so when I transitioned, I went to a different office because I didn't want to have to explain to customers, you know, everything, <laughs> um, which I was, they accommodated. And then there was this office function that uh, it was like a company function, um, like a retreat sort of thing. And my old boss is like leading this fun little work group that we had and he accidentally called me he but like he always knew me as he and he didn't know me you know much after that because I stopped working for him and like this whole table of younger people like jumped down his throat about it and I was sitting there like can we can we not like make this all about me right now I just want to like crawl into a hole and die but I like when you talk about like the office tension around this stuff um, it reminded me of that experience a, a little bit. And I think that that is like what's going on sort of at a wider scale. Um, and, and, and like one of the reasons why we made this show is because we thought as two trans people that media was not doing a great job <laughs> with the analysis on this stuff. So I appreciated, uh, you know, that that analysis. I did want to ask because you talked, you mentioned earlier that y- you think that people need to be more involved in the political process now because we're fighting an uphill battle. And you said, you know, an organized protest movement is a good thing. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about uh, today was actually over the weekend. Um, people in Chevy Chase, Maryland, right down the road from us, uh, turned out at Justice Kavanaugh's house to protest. And it sort of blew up into another round of discourse. And now you're getting, you know, everybody from, from you know, 
uh, Jen Psaki to John Harwood to all of these like major political guys say, you know, poo pooing this and saying, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be protesting at people's houses. I kind of wanted to give your thought, uh, like get your thoughts on that. And, 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 you know, you mentioned earlier that, that norms are being stretched and broken all over the place at SCOTUS. Now, this certainly seems to be another sort of norm breaking thing. Um, and, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. So I guess my take on the protest at Kavanaugh's house is that there are two separate questions here. Mm-hmm. One is, does this man deserve it? And I, I, you know, I think the answer to that is yes. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, is this an effective political tactic? And I, mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that that's a question. I, I mean, the per- I, I just believe very firmly the purpose of politics is to win. It's mm-hmm. not to feel good about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that protesters, you know, and again, like, I don't know whether this particular tactic is going to bear fruit or not. But, you know, I, I think that pro- protesters should think very intentionally about the tactics that they should use. And I think more importantly, they should think about how to use protests to build a sustainable movement. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the scholar, and I apologize, I'm always, I always mispronounce her name, uh, Zainab Tefeche at um, mm-hmm. UNC has, has a really good book where she describes essentially how like social media has created a disconnect between the apparent effectiveness of political movements and their actual Mm -hmm. effectiveness. And, you know, her argument basically goes like this. So the March on Washington, like the, the rally that Martin Luther King spoke at in the 1960s was a very important event, you know, not just because it was a demonstration of the power of people who supported black civil rights, Mm -hmm. but because in the 1960s, when there was no social media and like, you you know, no technology more sophisticated than phones and the U S mail organizing an event of that magnitude was an extraordinary undertaking. Like, like, you know, you needed to have people on the ground in tens of thousands of communities you you know you you need to know like who is the preacher in helena arkansas that has a congregation of 50 people who can get 35 of them to get on a bus and 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 go to washington this at this rally and then you have to multiply that by like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, 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 of local community, just an extraordinary undertaking. And the reason why that matters is that in the process of build of like, first you have to have a certain amount of like network infrastructure in order to even contemplate putting something like that on. And then in the process of putting that event on, you build your network out even more. So like mm-hmm. the value of it isn't actually the event. You know, the event is a flex. The value of it is having done that event now for years and years and years, you have this infrastructure where you know who the people are that you can call on throughout the country in order to support your movement. And what has happened in the social media era? I mean, this was on display. You know, I I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the Obama administration, there were just constantly rallies in in, in D.C. People like Fox News would like, you know, 
Glenn Beck, who was one of their big hosts, yeah. would say like, hey, I want to have a rally. And then 85,000 people would show up at D.C. because when you have that sort of platform, that's really easy to do. Yeah. And they were wearing like the tri-corner hats with the tea bags hanging off of them. Exactly. And like, I think what actually shut down this particular moment is that Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert then did a joke rally where they were able to get like a hundred something thousand people. And it just like, I think it really drove home the point that like getting a hundred thousand people to show up to Washington, D.C. isn't the flex that it used to be. Yeah. Um. And so I, I, I think the same thing is true about the moment that we're in right now. Like, you can get 100,000 people onto the mall fairly easily to protest the demise of Roe v. Wade. You can get a bunch of people to surround the Supreme Court or, you know, maybe to go to Brett Kavanaugh's house and, like, hold a candlelight vigil or hold up some signs or something. And, like, you you can think that like by doing you you see all this very visible all these very visible signs of um political protest and you can think that okay like we've really got something going here i think we're going to win but the way you win isn't getting people to show up for one day at one location and 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 hold a sign the way that you win is that you have to then use the activity of you know, getting these people together to build more permanent networks, to find out who the people are who are willing to organize door knocking operations at home, you know, Mm -hmm. to find out who the people are who are willing to organize fundraisers at home. Um, And ultimately, you know, I mean, I think that protests can be very valuable, Mm -hmm. but like, you know, 99% 99% of the important works of politics does not happen in the public eye. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, it is neighbors talking to neighbors. Uh, you know, it, 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 it is people organizing at their churches. It is people organizing, you know, maybe you play on like an, an, an adult kickball league. And if you can convince, you know, the, the, the third baseman and the pitcher on your kickball team to turn out and vote, then like, you know, if a thousand you know, or two thousand other people could do, you know, suddenly you're talking about real numbers here. We live in an era where it's very easy to be very visible doing political work, and it's very easy to have like, I mean, you know, and I say this, you know, I've got a hundred thousand followers on Twitter, but you know, so like, I maybe I'm the hypocrite here because like, it's very easy to get a lot of people to pay attention to what you have to say and to show mm-hmm. everyone how righteous you are. I think it is very difficult to do that hard organizing work, but that's, you know, how you win or how you lose. Mm. I think that's a good spot to wrap on. Yeah. I think so. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Ian. This was a lovely conversation, even though it's very grim. Everything is so grim right now, but like, you know, I guess the last thing that I'll say is, you, you know, we are still at the point where America's democratic decline can be reversed through the electoral process. We do not want to reach the point where it cannot be reversed through the ordinary mm-hmm. electoral process. Mm. And, you know, and the only way to prevent us from reaching that point is to use the hell out of the electoral process. Yeah, that's a good point. I hope, I really hope <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. No, thank you.
Caitlin, are you ready for some out of context cancellations? Yes. This show is overflowing with context. We need to get out of it. Um, well, great news. We have a lot of light out of context cancellations oh, today. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first, we're going to cancel some springtime allergies and the stomach flu. I am all for that. Let's get canceled getting getting sick. Let's cancel feeling bad. Everyone's just going to feel good. That's what I want. <laughs> clear, clear, uh, clear nose, everything. Yeah. Want your sinuses clear. That's what I want for everyone. I've had a sore throat for two weeks, so mm. we are not doing well over here at at the Burns household. Mm. Hate that for you. Yes. <laughs> Next, we're going to cancel fasting blood draws. Oh, my God. I need to do one of those this week. And, and mom, I promise this isn't about you. <laughs> What? <laughs> My mom mentioned she is getting one of those this week. So, but no, it actually came from one of our listeners. But she's <laughs> listening to our show now, so I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> um. Also, going to cancel the kink at Pride discourse, please, oh please. God, it's so bad. Enough of, enough of this. It's just like we get it. We, we've done this every year since I've, I mean, it's been going on for longer than I've been out. And we've done it every year since I've come out. And it's like, literally nobody has changed their mind on this in fucking decades. Okay, we don't need to have a, this discussion again. Uh, yeah, I, I, the discourse is like catnip and I'm tempted to say something, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm going to refrain. You know what? I'm going to my, refrain. My screen time was down 85% last week and I'm going to keep it that way right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we are also, so I think, I think this one will be one that people have mixed opinions about, but one of our listeners wanted us to cancel candy at every checkout everywhere. Um, I appreciate occasionally picking up a candy bar at the checkout for some self-indulgent, um, but this listener um, needed to go into the store to get windshield wipers and got a free tantrum from their five-year-old. And so I understand why they would like the candy out of the checkout lines, and I, I, I wish to grant that to them so they don't have to deal with that headache. And if you're listening right now and you have something that you want us to cancel, you can join our Patreon to support our show and tell us what to cancel. You can also get episodes early and your support helps us become a weekly show. You can join and learn about other perks at patreon.com slash cancel me daddy. Today's show was made by me, Oliver Ashkline, and my incredible co-host, Caitlin Burns. Daniel Peterschmidt made our theme song and ENMW designed our graphics. Our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work, especially the members of our Cancelor Hall of Fame, with the great power to cancel all of their enemies, Meg and Alice. We appreciate your support. Happy canceling!